This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. God has given us a remarkable grace recovery procedure so that when we sin in the Christian life, we can obtain instant forgiveness and cleansing simply by admitting to God in the privacy of our priesthood the sins that we have committed. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with just a few moments of silent prayer, so that if necessary, you can use 1 John 1.9, and then we are prepared to concentrate, focus on the study of His Word this morning. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we do thank You that we have this remarkable relationship with You that is based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Not only do we have salvation, but we enter into new life. And He is the source of that new life, and He is our nourishment. And as we study what it means to be in that relationship with Him, to abide with Him, to have fellowship with Him, we pray that we may be challenged with the significance of this and why it is important for our spiritual growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the 15th chapter of John. 15th chapter of John, and we continue our study of divine analogy in this chapter. This is uh, technically not part of the upper room discourse, for they have left the upper room and are on the way to... Uh, Gethsemane. But along the way, Jesus saw the vines growing along the side of the, of the mountain there, and He teaches them principles related to the spiritual life of the church age. church age has not begun yet, but He is preparing His disciples already. We saw in John 14 that He has announced the coming of the Holy Spirit, and that it would be the Holy Spirit who would guide and direct them into all things, and who would bring them bring to them, to their memory, all the things that Jesus had taught them. The point of this is that in the church age, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to the believer is unique among all of the ages. And what we have learned from that is that if we are going to learn anything from the Scriptures, it must be because of the role of God the Holy Spirit in our life. That is why it's important to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now when we come to chapter 15... 
We saw that Jesus began with the analogy of the vine, comparing himself to the vine, the father to the vine dresser in verse 1. And as we approach this, we saw that there is a controversy in this passage. Some people want to take this passage to refer to loss of salvation, and we need to examine the basic issue so that we can correctly interpret the text. By way of review, we saw that there is this major interpretive problem, and there are three options usually given for understanding the passage. The first is that unfruitful here means simply a professing but not a true believer. A professing but not a true believer. So that in verse 2, when Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that means that if you don't bear fruit, you're not a believer, according to that particular interpretation. But we have seen in our study of the Gospel of John that John never talks about anything such as an insincere or an in disingenuous faith, a faith that is not saving. If you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that is all that is necessary for salvation. It is not believe plus anything. It is simply believe, and even if no, quote, fruit comes along, the problem with that is in Lordship salvation, they always want to quantify the fruit. That so you have to have this in your life or that in your life. And as we have seen in our study, this analogy, that in a vine, it takes, there's a distinction in any vine, if you know anything about growing tomatoes or growing uh, grapes or anything, that there is a distinction between the fruit and the growth of the plant and the leaves. And yet, in all of the discussion and all of the debates over Lordship Salvation, uh, the issue is they don't distinguish between fruit and just the natural growth of the plant. There must be growth. I, I, I love to grow tomatoes, and usually it takes 60 to 80 days before you have fruit on the vine, and yet the vine is growing, and there is still growth. So the point of that analogy is that in the spiritual life, it takes years, it takes time before there is fruit. There must be a lot of growth spiritually before there is true fruit production. So there's a lot of confusion over that. And the first option, that unfruitful means a professing but not a true believer, is manifestly false. The second option that is often taught is that believers taken away in this passage, that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's a bad, We saw last time, not only is that a bad translation, it should be translated lifted up. But the interpretation is that the believers who are taken away lose their salvation. And we have studied the doctrine of eternal security several times, so we don't need to review that. But the Scriptures are clear that we are kept in our salvation by the power of God and by Jesus Christ. Jesus said that we are in His hand. Nothing can take us out of His hand. Not only that, but we are in the Father's hand, and nothing can take us out of the Father's hand. Because our salvation is not dependent upon anything that we have done, the security of that salvation is likewise not dependent upon anything that we have done. I have frequently said that if you think you can do something to lose your salvation, then you better analyze your understanding of the gospel very precisely. Because if you do think that you can do something to lose your salvation, then hidden somewhere in the recesses of your thinking is the idea that you did something to gain the salvation. Because we do nothing to gain it, we do nothing to preserve it. Jesus Christ does it all. Faith itself is non-meritorious. All the merit is in the object 
of the faith, the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the second interpretive option is also false. The third is the one that we hold to, and that is that unfruitful believers here experience divine discipline in time because they are unfruitful, they are not in line with God's plan, they are not in fellowship with God, so they will experience divine discipline in time and they will lose rewards in eternity. In order to interpret the passage correctly, we saw last time that there are three phrases that need to be understood correctly. See, in understanding any passage, a passage is built on vocabulary. And it's crucial to correctly interpret the vocabulary. Now, Jesus says in verse 2, every branch in me. Now, the typical knee-jerk response, first shot response of almost everybody, is to read John's use of the phrase in me in light of Paul's use of the phrase in Christ. But in Christ is a judicial term unique to Paul, and it refers to what happens positionally at the instant of salvation. If in me means the same thing as in Christ, then this is a passage related to salvation. If Paul, or if, excuse me, if John means something other than what Paul means by in Christ, then we have a different subject at hand. And we saw last time in a detailed study of the use of in me in John's gospel and in the epistles of John that in me has to do with relationship and it is not a judicial positional term as in Christ is with the Apostle Paul. So this means that when Jesus is talking to his disciples here in John 15, he is talking to them about the production in the Christian life as a result of fellowship with him He is not talking about production that comes automatically from justification. That, again, is an error and problem in lordship salvation. So, we have here the phrase, in me. That's the first interpretive phrase that we had to look at, and it tells us that the focus of the passage is on the believer's temporal walk with Jesus, his day-by-day fellowship. The second interpretive word that we must address is the word fruit. It's the Greek word karpos, and it means fruit, and a better word is production. Production. Fruit is not, as I said earlier, it's not to be identified as the growth of the foliage, the growth of the leaves, the growth of the plant itself. It is the ultimate production. It takes time to produce fruit. We know that the fruit is directly produced by God, the Holy Spirit. It is not something we do. Thus, the spiritual life must be distinguished from simple morality. Morality is for every member of the human race, believer or unbeliever alike. Unbelievers, non-Christians, can be incredibly moral. They can have a high standard of ethics. They can have a measure of integrity. That is something that is far different from the spiritual life. The spiritual life for the believer in this age, the church age, is vastly different. It is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that in our detailed study of Galatians chapter 5 with the commands to walk by means of the Spirit. And it is the walk by means of the Spirit that eventually produces the fruit of the Spirit. It takes time. That's why it's important to be 
continuously a Bible class. We're listening to tapes to have our thinking renovated so that we have saturated our minds with the Word of God. Only in that saturated soil of Bible doctrine can we have growth that culminates in fruit. So the second interpretive phrase we saw last time was karpos fruit, which means production. It is not to be identified as the responsibilities of our priesthood. As believer priests, we're responsible to pray. As believer priests, we're responsible to witness. As believer priests, we are responsible to give to the local church that where we are nourished and fed Bible doctrine. These are our responsibilities. That's not fruit. Fruit is character. Fruit is the image of Christ in us. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. This is what fruit is. So often you'll hear people talk about, well, you're just not bearing fruit. You need to get out there and witness to five people this week. Or you need to uh, pray more. Have you had your daily devotions? Are you reading your Bible every day? And we want to quantify fruit in terms of this overt, concrete, quantifiable type of thing. And that's just the opposite of what the Scripture says. So fruit is the internal transformation of the believer into the image of Jesus Christ. It is character. It is not activity. The third thing, the third interpretive key is the word meno. Meno, translated abide, it means to continue, it means to remain, sometimes it might mean to endure. I think it is roughly synonymous to the Greek word hupomeno. Meno, it's a compound word uh, from the preposition hupo plus meno, which means to endure, to be steadfast. And we know from our study of James that endurance is a key to the spiritual life. It is not a key to salvation. So once again, meno seems to indicate that we're talking about fellowship with Christ, not justification or positional union with Christ. We looked at John 6.56 and the surrounding context where Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, many times this is taken as a salvation verse. We'll just skip past the misinterpretation of the Roman Catholic Church who wants to use this to substantiate uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation. In John 6.53, we saw that, that there was a shift, there was a finite verb used there in the aorist indicative, which indicated, or it was the aorist subjunctive, which indicated the potential of belief. Eating and drinking are non-meritorious actions. Anyone can eat or drink. A baby can eat or drink. An old person, a person with no education, a person with a lot of education, a poor person, a rich person, everybody can eat or drink. So eating and drinking is used in the Scripture to symbolize taking in something, accepting something. And so eating and drinking represents accepting Christ as your Savior, believing in Jesus Christ. Now, The problem with the first two interpretations I mentioned earlier, the interpretation number one that that this is a false faith, the interpretation that this is losing salvation, takes both of those interpretations, take the word abide, meno, as being synonymous to faith, to accepting Christ as Savior. But what we showed last time, if you go through various passages like this one, 
If the first metaphor of eating and drinking refers to accepting Christ as your Savior, then abide could not refer to accepting Christ as Savior. If it did, then we would translate it, He who accepts Christ as Savior accepts Christ as Savior. That would be a redundancy and be meaningless. You see the same problem. We'll see the same problem in John 15, 4, when Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. If that were, if abide is synonymous with belief, then that would roughly be, would roughly mean, believe in me and I believe in you. Well, that's ridiculous. Why would Jesus want to believe in us? So we see from this that abide is not synonymous with belief or accepting Christ as Savior. It is tantamount to fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so in John 6.56, when Jesus says this, the eating my flesh, drinking my blood is a participle here, which indicates the continued nourishing on Christ in the believer's life as he takes in Bible doctrine, the Word of God, which in Second First Corinthians 2.16 is called the mind of Christ. So John 6.56 is emphasizing uh, Christian life doctrine, or what we would call sanctification doctrine, the continuous feeding on Jesus Christ. Remember, he said, I am the bread of life. And it, when in the temptation with, in the desert, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So our spiritual life is nourished, not by singing hymns, not by going out and witnessing, not by all the various activities that people tend to emphasize for the spiritual life. The spiritual life is nourished by one and only one thing, and that is the Word of God. That we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow by it. It is by the Word and the Word alone under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we grow and mature in the spiritual life. So that brings us now to our passage we're in John 15:2, and we will develop the concept here. This is one of the most significant passages. John 15, along with Romans 6, 7, and 8, in conjunction with Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5, are the core passages for understanding the spiritual life. You have to go through those. Unfortunately, in the last year, we spent four months going through Galatians 5, tying it in with Ephesians 4, tied it in with Romans 8. So we're hitting all of these key passages in one year. So you ought to be experts in the spiritual life by now. At least experts in understanding it as academic truth, right? Gnosis. We'll see if it becomes epinosis or not. Applicational knowledge. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. This refers to every believer who is in fellowship with the Lord but is not yet bearing fruit. See, there is a difference here. You have two categories mentioned. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And we saw last time that the verb there is the Greek word iro, which means to lift up. And you can go to Israel today and go to the various vineyards, and you will see that, the, that on the vines, the tender shoots that are coming out, the tender branches that tend to come out and don't have any strength in themselves, that they will prop them up with stones. They will lift up that branch so that it, until it has strength on its own to survive. And so category one in this verse is talking about the immature believer. This is not a, uh, this is not a carnal believer in the sense of an older mature believer who's in rebellion. This is talking about a young immature believer 
that's in that stage between spiritual infancy and spiritual adulthood who has not grown enough to produce fruit. God comes along and props up the baby believer to get them to that point so that they can produce fruit. Then you have another category in the second half of the verse. Every branch that bears fruit. The branch that bears fruit is the mature believer. The mature plant produces fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Now, the interesting thing is the word for pruning here is a word related to cleansing. It is the verb kathairo. We'll come back and see it a little more, but since we're here right now, it is the verb kathairo. Looks like this in the Greek, K-A-T-H-A-I-R-O. And you can see that there's a bit, it's kata, the preposition kata plus iro. Now, we just saw that, didn't we? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he what? He takes away, iro, he lifts up. So you see John carefully chooses his words here. Now, there's a relationship here between this verb and another verb that should be somewhat familiar to most of you. And that is the verb katharizo, which means to cleanse or to purify. But they're different. Now, this has led some to, make, to, to slip into some misinterpretation on this passage, so we'll come back and look at the significance of that difference. But I just want to point it out now that this, this pruning process is a matter of purification. It is, it is to produce more fruit in the life of the believer, and this is momentum testing in the spiritual life or pruning testing. That when you reach a spiritual adulthood as a mature plant, you haven't reached spiritual maturity yet, you've reached spiritual adulthood, you're beginning to produce fruit. Well, God is going to come in with testing in your life. He's going to allow certain types of adversity that are tailor-made to your personality, tailor-made to your, the strengths and weaknesses of your sin nature, tailor-made to your background and everything that makes you who you are. He's going to bring these tests to bear in your life so that you're forced to make decisions related to priorities. See, pruning, the problem with, with a plant is that it, it just grows all these little stems and leaves, and so its energy is diverted in all kinds of directions other than the fruit production. And what you have to do is come in and prune these, these leaves off and these other stems off so that all of the energy from the plant is forced into fruit production. So what God does, once you reach spiritual adulthood, He brings this momentum testing to bear, this pruning testing, so that you're forced to decide that there's a lot of good things you like to do in life that you're not going to do anymore because they distract you from doctrine, from fruit production. And so this whole thing is designed to, to speed up and intensify your growth. Minnow, we saw, emphasizes relationship not just judicial position. Now we're going to get back to our basic new slide here that's going to confuse everybody. I introduced this on Wednesday night that we have the cross where we are saved, Acts 16.31, and at the point of salvation we enter into two different spheres of relationship with God. Sphere one has to do with our eternal realities. Sphere two has to do with our 
temporal realities. Now, for I don't know how many years, I know many of you have seen the diagram of the top circle and bottom circle. Now we're going to blow your mind. Test your flexibility. We are now going to have a left circle and a right circle. The left circle represents the sphere of our identification in Jesus Christ. At the moment of salvation, Scripture says, we are placed in union with Christ, identified with His death, burial, and resurrection, and this is called the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. This is not an experiential act. It is something that takes place instantaneously upon your faith alone in Christ alone. And secondly, we enter into a relationship with the Lord based on our day-to-day experience. This is our temporal reality. This is called being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, I use the white circles because we are in light. We become sons of light with our adoption into the family of God, so we are positionally in the light. But as a result of our faith alone and Christ alone, we are filled with the Spirit which we can lose. And we are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, which in Ephesians chapter 5 is also called walking in the light. And in our passage, it's called abiding in me. All of these terms are synonymous. Now, what happens is, in terms of our Christian life, our Christian growth, we, make a, we, we often sin. And outside the sphere of light is darkness. Darkness is tantamount to sin nature control. We are in carnality. The little black diamond there represents our usual diagram for the sin nature. And the instant we sin, whether it's a mental attitude sin, sin of the tongue, or overt sin, we are out of the light. Positionally, we are still in the light, but practically we are out of the light. And we are walking in darkness. The only way to recover and get back inside the circle where we are walking in the light is through the use of 1 John 1.9. And when we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, we are instantly forgiven. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and we are restored to fellowship with Jesus Christ so that we once again are abiding in Christ. Now, another way to look at this, this is a common diagram we're all familiar with. I've used it over and over again, even though I've turned it sideways and we now have a left circle and right circle. We're going to see this is not left brain, right brain, right brain or what I call left brain, right brain, no brain. (laughs) Left circle, right circle, whole new terminology. That's going to shake everybody up. It's not heresy. Okay. Kathiro means to make clean. It's different from katharizo, which means to cleanse or to purify. Now, let's think about that a minute. What Jesus is saying here is that I'm going to make you clean. It's a process. The kathairo is different from katharizo in that katharizo is what happens at 1 John 1, 9 and you are cleansed or purified instantaneously back in fellowship. But kathairo indicates a process. I am making you clean. It's, the, it's what we call progressive sanctification. Now, that may be a new term. Sanctification is the technical term. In the old King James, you hear the word sanctify, saint. All of these come from the basic Greek root, hagiadzo, which means to make holy, separate, distinct, 
to fulfill, and it basically means to fulfill God's plan for your life in terms of spiritual maturity. So sanctification is that process. Now, we know, I'll back up, that in terms of our diagram here, the left circle in Christ is positional sanctification. At the instant that we are at the instant that we are identified with Christ in terms of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, we are positionally sanctified. We are sons of light. We are perfect in God's eyes. We have the per- we have had imputed to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then when the, but the right circle, the right circle indicates our progress. The more time we spend in the right circle, the more there is spiritual growth. That is the process. So it is called progressive sanctification. It's a progress from spiritual maturity to spiritual adulthood. Now, let's go to a new diagram. This is the spiritual life. We'll draw it as a line proceeding from the lower left corner to the top right-hand corner. The dot in the lower left-hand corner represents the moment that you put your faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. At that instant, you are born again and you become a spiritual infant. That is spiritual birth. The line indicates the process or progress of spiritual growth. So you have three stages from spiritual birth to spiritual adulthood to eventual spiritual maturity. We'll shade the area above the line green. That's where spiritual growth takes place. The area beneath the line will shade with a dark gray, and that indicates carnality or sin nature control. Now, as you advance up the line from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, you will spend a certain amount of time inside, now think in terms of that diagram, inside the right circle, inside that sphere. That's represented by that short little tick here, right here, that represents um, the small amount of time you tend to spend in fellowship, abiding with Christ as an immature baby believer. And then you spend a maximum amount of time, that's why it's longer over here, in carnality, walking according to the flesh. But as you grow and mature, you begin to learn some doctrine. You begin to use 1 John 1, 9 a little more, and you spend a little more time in the arena of spiritual growth and a little less time over here in carnality. And as you grow, the amount of time you spend in spiritual growth and the... Uh, filled with the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, changes. Now, that spiritual growth area is called walking in me or abiding in me. It is our continuous fellowship with Jesus Christ. Also, walking in the Spirit, being filled by means of the Spirit. All of these terms are, are synonymous. It's called being in fellowship with Christ, in fellowship with God. And this is the arena of forward momentum. See, we're not saved just to sit around in diapers. Unfortunately, the evangelical church in America is satisfied with sitting in diapers. And the church in America is probably the world's largest nursery. Very few pastors have a vision for taking their parishioners out of the nursery and into graduate school. They have no concept how to make them go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. They just want everybody to be moral. Well, 
that's not our philosophy here at Preston City Bible Church. We're here to help people learn the Word of God so that they can grow from spiritual infancy and advance all the way to spiritual maturity. Now, when we're in carnality, the Scripture says we're walking according to the flesh. The flesh is the sin nature. We're walking according to the flesh. We're out of fellowship, and we go into reverse momentum. Going uphill, the advance in the spiritual life is often parallel to driving uphill with a car that has no brakes and only two gears, forward and neutral. And the thing is, as soon as you sin, you put it in neutral, and if you're going uphill without a brake, you just start going backward. And you increase your reverse momentum as you spend more and more time out of fellowship. So we have to walk in fellowship, walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, and abide in Christ. Now, all of this just sets the stage for understanding what Jesus is saying in this passage. Now, in John 15:3, Jesus says, You are already clean. Now, here Jesus uses a word for clean that is katharos. Now, this is why I keep coming back to this, this key word. Kathiro is pruning. Katharizo is the word for cleansing or purification that's used in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here Jesus uses the noun katharos. K-A-T-H-A-R-O-S. Katharos. Now, what does he mean by that? Because the word katharos, cleansing, can refer to salvation cleansing or can refer to the cleansing that takes place in the spiritual life. So we have to remember our context. Context: Jesus is having an ongoing discussion with the disciples going back to the initial foot washing episode in John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, Jesus made the comment that you are all clean, but not all of you. And that was a reference we saw to Judas Iscariot not being saved. And when Jesus made the statement, you are all clean, that was identical to the statement Jesus makes right here in John 15.3. It's the same verbiage. Humes katharoi esta in the Greek. You are all clean. So as we saw in the analogy of John 13, where Jesus said, you've bathed completely, now you just need to have your feet washed. And then he said, but all of you are already clean. He's using clean there, katharos, to refer to salvation. So if we take this in context, when Jesus says in John 15, 3, you are already clean, he's not talking about kathairo in the previous verse, you've already been pruned, so now you can produce fruit. He's not talking to them yet. Remember, we've seen these guys just don't get the point yet. They are missing information. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. If you weren't here for the study, when we went through John 14, we saw that they kept asking questions that were that indicated they're rather they're, they're out of touch. Jesus says, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." And Philip would turn around and say, "Well, just show us the Father." Well, and then Jesus would say, "Well, if you've seen me, you've seen." They just don't get it. There is some kind of spiritual block in how much they can really learn about spiritual truth. 
And that's why Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So these guys are not mature yet. They are not fruit producers yet. Katharos in verse 3 does not mean or relate to the kathairo in verse 2. All he is saying in verse 3, it's real simple. You're already clean. You're already saved. Why? Dia plus the accusative in the Greek means cause. Because of the word which I have spoken to you. What is the word that Jesus spoke to them? It's the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, the Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of free gift of salvation is Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ came to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. So this is the gospel that he has explained to them, that he is the Messiah. He has come to die on the cross for the sins of the world. You are already clean. That is, you're already saved because of the word which I have spoken to you. And now he moves from from salvation doctrine to spiritual life doctrine. You're already saved. Now the issue changes. The issue now is abide in me. Now if abide meant to believe, then this would be a redundancy. Why would he command them to be saved? He's already said they're saved. He is talking about what is necessary to experience spiritual growth. To abide in me and I in you. This is relational terminology. This has to do with fellowship between the believer and his Lord. And then he says, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The point is that no matter how much activity you're engaged in, no matter how moral your life might be, no matter what religious activities you might participate in, it's not fruit unless you're in fellowship with Jesus Christ, unless you're abiding with Him. All you're doing is producing wood, hay, and straw, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and which we will look at in just a few minutes. John 15:5. Jesus again goes back to the analogy. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, that is the believer who continues in fellowship with me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. This is the mature believer. He will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Greek makes it very clear. It's a very strong statement. You can do absolutely nothing. It reminds me of the same thing Paul says in Galatians 5.16 or 5.15. Walk by means of the Spirit and you absolutely cannot fulfill, carry out the deeds of the flesh. It's clear. It's one or the other. You're walking according to the sin nature or you're walking according to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, you have to be in me. Apart from me, apart from a relationship with me, you can do absolutely nothing. Unless you're in fellowship with me, you cannot produce anything of eternal value. It may have temporal value, but it has no eternal value. And then the warning in verse 6. If, and this is a third class condition, indicating in the Greek, either you will or you won't, giving everybody the option. Remember, there's four different ways in Greek to express an if clause. In English, there's only one way, if. But in Greek, there are four different ways, and each way has a different significance. If and this is true. If 
and this is not true. If maybe you will, maybe you won't. If I wish you would, but you won't. Here he uses that third class expression, aeon plus a subjunctive verb. If anyone does not abide in me. So this is your option as a believer. It's your decision whether you're going to walk in fellowship with the Lord or not. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now, so many people read this and they immediately jump to the conclusion that this is talking about the fires of hell, the lake of fire. Just because the scripture mentions fire and burning does not mean you're talking about eternal judgment, eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. You have another passage that very clearly speaks of burning and of fire, and this is in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 12. The subject here is the judgment seat of Christ. This is sometimes called the Bema seat. This is where every believer is evaluated according to his spiritual production while on the earth. The image is of a building. The, the images of the believer's life is a building. In contrast to John 15, which is using the believer's life by and teaching about the believer's life in relation to abiding in the vine and fruit production, this is talking about the believer's life in terms of erecting an edifice. So Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. See, he goes from one analogy to the other. You're God's field, you're also God's building. All of these are simply metaphors to teach spiritual life truth. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Now that foundation, in Paul's terminology, is the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I laid that foundation. I came to Corinth. I taught you the gospel. I laid the foundation. I gave you spiritual life truth. And he says another is building on These are the other teachers, the other pastors came into Corinth, taught doctrine, and they're beginning to grow and develop. And then he says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. That's talking about each believer. You need to be careful how you build your life. Are you building a life that has eternal value? consequences that are positive for eternity, which we also call divine good, or not. Verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here he explains the analogy. Christ is the foundation. The building on it is your life, what you do with the Word of God. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones wood, hay, or straw. So, our life is a mixed bag. Sometimes we're in fellowship, we're abiding in Christ, we're walking by means of the Spirit, we're walking in the light, and the production there is going to be gold, silver, precious stones, because it doesn't come from us. Remember what Christ says in John 15? He's the one who produces in us, not us. So that's gold, silver, and precious stones. But other times we're out of fellowship. We're outside that right circle. We're in carnality. We may still be doing good things. We may still be going to Bible class. We may still be involved in altruistic endeavors. We may still be moral. But it's done from the energy of the flesh. And it has no eternal value. It is wood, hay, and straw. Verse 13. Each man's work will become evident. It's going to become revealed and manifest at 
uh, judgment seat of Christ. For the day, that is the day of the judgment seat of Christ, which takes place during the tribulation on the earth, while that's taking place on the earth, the bride of Christ is in heaven being evaluated. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So here we have another passage talking about burning and fire, but it's not hellfire, it's not eternal condemnation. It's the fact, the image is that all believers are in heaven, all Christians arrive in heaven during the tribulation, and everything they do in their life is piled up. You have this edifice there. And then it's, it's set fire to, so that that which has no eternal value is consumed. Whatever is left over is what you walk into heaven with. That's your, your commerce for eternity, is what you have as a result of your three score and ten on the earth. Some will be gold, silver, and precious stones. Some will not. Whatever you're left with. Some people are going to have a great pile of gold, silver, and precious stones. Others are going to have nothing but ashes. Now, this doesn't affect their salvation. This is talking about their position in eternity, rewards and inheritance in eternity. Verse 14, If any man's work which he has built on it remains... He will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss. He'll lose rewards. He'll lose position. He'll lose inheritance. But he himself will still be saved. He will lose at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. But he will still be saved, yet as through fire. Might have a little uh, stench on him as he walks down the golden streets. Might go walk by him and see a little uh, soot on his uh, white robe, but he's still going to be in heaven. He won't have anything. This is the person who says, "Well, I don't care what I have in heaven, just as long as I'm there." And I used to cringe when I'd hear people say that. They just have such a low concept of God's plan and purpose for the believer's life. So when Jesus says in John 15:6, "If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch." them, cast them into the fire and they are burned. He is talking about divine discipline on the believer. He is not talking about loss of salvation. He may even be talking about the sin unto death, the ultimate discipline in the believer's life for failing to fulfill God's plan and purposes for his life. Then we come to John 15:7. Jesus says again a third class condition, if maybe you will, maybe you will not. You see, it's up to your volition whether or not you're going to fulfill God's plan for your life by abiding in Christ. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done to you. Now, remember back in John 14, Jesus said, if you ask in my name, whatever you ask, it will be done to you. So back there, Jesus brings in this idea of prayer. Prayer in relationship with the Lord. He also tied it to obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, like a master teacher, the Lord introduces one theme. Then He introduces another theme. Then He puts them together. Then He comes in in the next chapter and He introduces another theme. And then He ties that to the first two themes of love and obedience. 
And this is where he starts to bring them together. You have love, obedience, and prayer. If you abide in me, that's personal relationship. My words abide in you, that's listening to the Word of God, obeying His commandments, walking in obedience to Him, and my words abide in you. You have a relationship with doctrine. You're submissive to doctrine. You're applying it in your life. Ask whatever you wish and shall be done to you. Not just anybody can get their prayers answered. This is standard in every dispensation. The psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Often people get the idea that that God's going to listen to every prayer. Why? Are we somehow so impressive to God that He's going to listen to us? No. We have to fit God's protocol for prayer. God has certain procedures for prayer, and the first is that we have to be in fellowship. The second is, from this passage, is we have to be growing. We have to be advancing in spiritual life. We have to have that abiding relationship with the Lord. It's not just a matter of, oh, I'm in trouble now, better get back in fellowship, confess my sins and pray, and then God will hear me. Two seconds later, you're back out of fellowship. That's not what we see here. This is abiding. This isn't jumping back into fellowship for two seconds. This is abiding, remaining, continuing, walking in fellowship with the Lord. And then we have a prayer promise. Ask what you wish shall be done for you. Not anything you wish, because if you're abiding with Him, your thinking is being transformed by His Word, so that you know what to pray for that will be in His will. So we go to 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will. See, how do you know what His will is? Because you're abiding with Him. You're walking with Him. You have this close relationship with Him. And His words abide in you so you know His will. This isn't just the believer who manages to jump into fellowship right now just so he can get some some, uh, panicky prayer answer. This is a believer who knows God's will because he knows God's Word because he has this continuously abiding relationship with Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request request which we have asked from Him. That is the prayer promise. So Jesus moves from fellowship, learning God's Word, having a relationship with doctrine, And then prayer. Then in verse 8, by this he says, by this what? By this prayer. By the prayer that is a result of letting doctrine abide in your life and having that relationship with Him. It's the whole process. By this, this whole process of your spiritual growth is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. See, glorification of God isn't simply... Although I think God is glorified at some level by our spiritual growth from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. If we're going to really glorify God, it comes at spiritual maturity through fruit production. That's the goal in the spiritual life. Not just to be a spiritual baby, not just to get by, not just to make sure we're going to be in heaven. But the purpose for our salvation is to glorify God to the maximum. And that doesn't happen until we reach spiritual maturity. Because fruit bearing doesn't happen until spiritual adulthood. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is a very interesting clause. The word prove there comes from the Greek verb genomai, which means to become. 
So we see from this passage that the word disciple has many different shades of meaning. Here he's talking about becoming disciples. That Disciple basically means to, uh, to be a learner or a student. Now there are many disciples that didn't follow Jesus. They were believers, but they didn't follow Jesus. He's talking about the essence of true discipleship is spiritual maturity. So here he's using disciple in the sense of a true follower who goes all the way with his teacher. That disciple doesn't always mean that, but he's using it that way here. It says you glorify God, you bear much fruit, and at that point you demonstrate that you are, you are disciples. Disciple is not a synonym for believer. Remember that. He's not saying so prove to be a believer. A disciple. A disciple is a believer who is committed to the path of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And then verse 9, Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved you, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now we come back to the theme of love. How did all of this get started? Jesus gives a new commandment in John 13, 34, and 35. This new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you. And we have seen in our study of this upper room discourse from John 13 to John 17 that Jesus uses the word love 27 times. This is the major theme, the major emphasis in this entire discourse. The word was only used six or seven times prior to John 13 and in two or three of those it was used to refer to, to the fallen persons, the unbelievers' love for the world. So here the emphasis in this upper room discourse is on what it means to love one another and what it means to love Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, just as the Father has loved me in terms of our personal relationship and fellowship with one another, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. It is relational here. It's not positional. This is not talking about that left circle just being in the position of love. It is talking about the experience of love. And then Jesus is going to come down here in a couple of verses and He is going to say that you are my friends. And He's going to use the noun philos, which is related to the verb phileo. God doesn't have phileo love for any but believers. And so in the next few verses, we're going to unpack some crucial information about the, the relationship between the growing believer and the Lord Jesus Christ. And since all of these verses from about verse 10 down through about 20 have to do with this theme of love, we'll come back and take that in one unit next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You so much that You have loved us so much that You sent Your Son to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Scripture says that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. This tells us that our salvation is not based on anything we do. It's not based on who we are. It's not based on any ritual or any bargain with You. It's based exclusively on the work that You have done on our behalf. That You sent Your Son, the perfect Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, to die on the cross as our substitute. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, 
that they would take this opportunity right now to make it certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe that He died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. It's simply accepting a free gift. It is not giving anything to God. It's not impressing God with some bargain. It's simply accepting a free gift. And at that moment on, you have new life. You have an eternal destiny in heaven that can never be taken away from you. And from that moment on, the issue is abide in Christ or not. And for those of us who are believers, we pray that we would accept this challenge to abide continuously in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things, that we can pursue spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, that you may be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.